Welcome to Crosswalk Radio, the Bible teaching radio ministry of Crosswalk Church in Daytona Beach, Florida. Take your Bibles and join us today in the New Testament book of Romans as we begin a brand new study on one of the most important books found in the Bible. Father, thank you for the privilege of standing before your people this morning. What an awesome responsibility and weight it is to stand here with a Bible open and a notebook full of notes and to presume to speak for God. Um, What an awesome and frightening responsibility. I pray that you would sanctify our time together this morning, that you would sanctify my heart, that you would measure my speech, my communication in such a manner that that which is said will not only be honorable and pleasing to you, but that it might be accurate, as accurate as this earthen vessel can possibly offer, depending solely upon your divine intervention and help. I pray not only for the word that is spoken from this pulpit this morning, but for the ears that sit out there and that will hear and listen. I pray for their ability to hear and to listen and that your word will find its way just not through their ear canal, but into their very heart and into their lives in a very life-changing and transforming way. So bless our time together this morning and accomplish above all your will and your good pleasure through it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In Romans chapter 1, I want to begin by reading Romans 1, verses 1 through 7, and um, we will go from there. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets, and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Today we begin, as I said to you a few Sundays ago, a couple of Sundays ago, we begin our exposition of the book of Romans. And more accurately, it is a letter, not a book. Sometimes we look at it, we say, well, our Bible has 66 books. Well, actually, as you get to the New Testament, and with the exception of the Gospels and perhaps the history book that is written in the book of Acts, the book of Acts, they actually are letters. In fact, in your Bible, if you were to open, as you already have, to the first page of this particular letter, your Bible will say something like the epistle of Paul to the Romans or the letter of Paul to the Romans, as it is in the more contemporary translations. And epistle simply means that. It simply means letter. 
and albeit in the case of Romans, a lengthy, instructive letter that it is. And, but this is no normal letter of merely human origin. In fact, Donald Gray Barnhouse, who was for 33 years the pastor of 10th Avenue Presbyterian Church uh, up north, made this comment. He comments that this letter to the Roman Christians, like all other portions of the Word of God, was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the mind of the writer and came forth as the spoken Word of God. The writer's mind became the resting place. And I love the way Barnhouse words that. The resting place of absolutely divine ideas. When they are read, this letter actually is to us the eternal Word of God. And indeed, that is the truth. In fact, the title of this letter, Romans, or the Epistle of Paul to the Romans, comes from the intended recipients, the members of the Roman of the church in Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire at that time we saw in verse 7 of chapter 1. Augustine considered the letter to the Romans to be the most basic, most comprehensive statement of Christianity. And as I've done over the years, as I've read this book and preached from this, but I have not done this book expositorily from chapter 1 to all the way to chapter 13, every single verse, which we will begin doing as of today. But I have all through the years, 30 some years of pastoring and preaching, have preached through this book at various times and in various settings. Augustine was exactly right. It is the most comprehensive statement of Christianity. In fact, as I was reading and have continued to read the different ideas and notions, in fact, we are sitting at a time where just here recently, within the last decade, has risen somewhat of a theological debate which centers around what is called the new perspective on Paul, where actually Paul's theology and Paul's writings are being completely reinterpreted and re-exposited for us in a whole different manner. Uh, basically, the new perspective on Paul is saying that the Reformation interpretation of Paul's theology and of Paul's writings and his letters basically find their root in uh, uh, Augustine theology, basically in Augustine's, de- or Augustine's debate with Pelagius, and therefore the Reformers framed Paul's theology and interpreted Paul's writings in light of their understanding of Augustine to where it almost favors nothing that Jesus taught. And of course, we know nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, Martin Luther described Romans as the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel. As we get through this, we will begin to point out some of those things as I go through this exposition with you. I want us to look first at verse 1. In verse 1, we're going to look at one word today. Does that surprise you? But I don't want you to panic in that I am actually going to do an exposition of every single word in every verse of every chapter of this book or this letter. But in verse 1, I want us to notice the very first word of this. It is Paul. Now that is a way, isn't that a way to start a letter by the author beginning with his own name. So the author immediately identifies himself Paul. Now, no serious or 
informed person disputes Pauline authorship of this letter. In fact, it's amazing to find that even the most profound, if, if you use such a word like that to speak of a skeptic, uh, most vocal skeptics will even admit, well, yes, Paul did. A person by the name of Paul who we picture as the apostle in the first century church was the author of this letter. So no serious or informed person disputes Pauline authorship of this letter. And this is due primarily to the testimony by the apostolic fathers and the inclusion of this letter in the earliest history of New Testament books. There it is. You find no church father, early church father, that disputes Pauline authorship of this letter. In fact, any student of the New Testament is very familiar with Paul. It has been written that, the, that next to Jesus Christ, Paul is arguably the most important figure in the Christian faith. Now, let me qualify that statement because that is a very strong statement. In fact, you will read, if you've done any reading and Bible study yourself, and you know a very extensive Bible study, you will find that the critics out there basically want to discredit Christianity by saying that Christianity is in, in fact the invention of a man by the name of Paul rather than that which comes from the person of Jesus Christ. And again, as I go back to what I said in the beginning of this exposition, nothing could be further from the truth. So when we say next to Jesus, Paul is probably the most important figure in our understanding the New Testament, we say that in light of this, that if you look at the 27 books of your New Testament, 27 letters, not all letters, but 27 books and letters of your consisting books and letters in your New Testament, you will see that Paul is accredited with authoring 13 of those. That is, if in fact you were, if you were to include the book of Hebrews, which I, I, I personally doubt that Paul is the author of Hebrews. Some scholars say that he is. I'm not going to get into that argument with anybody. I, I just don't see it that way, but that's simply my perspective. But even without the book of Hebrews, Paul authored 13 books, wrote 13 letters that are recorded for us. So you, there you have roughly half, just one letter or one book less than half of your entire New Testament. And so obviously his influence is going to be tremendous in the way that we see the gospel, the way that we understand the gospel, that which Jesus comes and teaches to us that is recorded for us in the three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then the synoptic gospel of John is explained to us in detail through the writings of the apostles, not only Paul, but Peter, James, and the other apostles as well as they would teach and as their words are recorded for us in the pages of Scripture. Now, again, no doubt this is a strong statement saying that Paul, next to Jesus, is arguably the most important figure in the Christian faith. But if we stop just for, for just a moment and think about it, we find there is merit in that statement. His life, his letters... And theology are, have indelibly shaped the Christian faith for 2,000 years. For those who were present for our exposition, for example, the first and second Peter, which we did, I guess it was well over a year on Wednesday evenings, you'll recall at the close of second Peter, as we brought ourselves to the end of the exposition, second Peter chapter three, verses 15 and 16, the apostle Peter, in no uncertain terms, this is the apostle who walked with Jesus, Peter, 
who was with him throughout his earthly ministry, who was present at his arrest, present at his trial, and from afar was present at his crucifixion, who was a witness to his resurrection. So here's the Apostle Peter. And in Peter's own mind, in regards to Paul, listen to what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. In no uncertain terms, what Peter does, Peter affirms and even commends Paul's teaching and writings. In fact, he says in verse 15 of 2 Peter 3, he says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. And there's been many times during my study I've offered a resounding amen. Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Now clearly in two sentences. That is exactly what those two verses are made of. Two sentences. Clearly in those two sentences, Peter extends a very significant honor to Paul. Peter first uses a term of endearment, beloved brother, which in the Greek, actually, the word for beloved or the love part of that beloved brother is the word, which is a, from the Greek word agape, which we know is the most intense type of love. So it is a, a strong term of endearment that Peter exemplifies toward Paul, a beloved, my beloved brother, our beloved brother. He uses that term of endearment when he refers to Paul. He then references the wisdom given to him, which no doubt was no, has nothing to do with having received it from men. In fact, Paul as much as tells us that when he writes in other passages of his letters, when he says, that which I give to you I did not receive from men, but I received from the Lord Himself. And he goes on talking about his teaching. And Peter is in effect reinforcing that. He's saying the wisdom that Paul has is wisdom that was given to him. It wasn't wisdom that he received from men. It was wisdom that he received from God. Next, he mentions the spiritual substance or the depth of Paul's teachings by saying there are some things in them that are hard to understand. However, if you look at that, the fact that he uses the term of endearment, beloved brother, the fact that he's received wisdom from God, the fact that there is substance and depth to the things that Paul teaches. The greatest commendation, however, of Peter in regards to Paul, and this is important as we get into our exposition of the letter of Romans, the greatest commendation of Peter in regards to Paul is found in the last part of verse 16 of 2 Peter 3. And what Peter does in the last part of that second sentence in verse 16 is unequivocally equate Paul's writings with the other scriptures. Now, don't, don't pass over that as if that is insignificant. In effect, this is what Peter is saying in making that statement. In effect, he's saying, and we know this to be true, that Paul's writings, his letters, like the other apostolic authors, I'm sorry, are inspired Scripture. And Paul, like the other apostolic authors of our New Testament, have joined the ranks, so to say, of the holy prophets of old who spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
Their words are among the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And here's what Peter is saying. Paul's words are among these words. These are the words of Scripture. When Paul writes, he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. As Barnhouse said, Paul's mind becomes, as it were, the fertile ground for the thoughts of God. God puts those thoughts into his mind and he begins to write. And we ask the question many have asked, do you believe that they knew that they were writing things that were, were on par with the scriptures of the Old Testament? I'm not so sure in what measure they knew, but you know they had to know. As, you're, as they are penning these words, to know that their mind has become, as it were, the instrument of God imparting his truth to his people. And so what Peter says is, Paul's writings have joined the ranks of the writings of the prophets of old who were giving us the Scripture. And they were writing as the Spirit of God moved upon them. They were writing under what we call theonustos or panustos, which is the inspiration, the breathing of God's Spirit upon them to write. I'm anxious in March to get back out. Last year when I left the Shepherds Conference at Dr. MacArthur's church in California. I was a little bit apprehensive about, well, when we got there, I didn't know whether that might be my last year for a while of going. It's a long ways to go. It's an expense to go, even though I enjoy the wonderful company that I go with and the company that I enjoy while I'm there because we are united with the guys from Jupiter and we spend days together and we eat together and we fellowship together. I just was like, well, maybe next year I'll spare the expense of going. And then midway through the conference, they announced that this year is a special conference where they're going to be dealing specifically with the inspiration of Scripture. And so, you know, and, and if you register now, it's a discount. So what do we do? We picked up our computers right during the meeting and we register right there. And so I am going back, but I'm looking forward to it because years ago uh, at, at the Conference on Infallibility and Inspiration, which I believe was held in Chicago, Several men who were at that conference, when they signed the document in regards to the inspiration of Scripture, will be the speakers at the Shepherds Conference. And so they got more breakout sessions than they've ever had. And I really look forward to sitting under some of those men and listening to them revisit that. You would think, well, that's a settled issue, right? No, it's not a settled issue. In fact, the sufficiency of Scripture, the infallibility of Scripture and the inspiration of Scripture is still a debated issue today, surprisingly, in evangelical circles. Now, throughout the history of the Christian church, the early church fathers and theologians depended heavily on Paul's writings. Augustine appealed to him, as I'm sure, and as I'm sure you've already know, Luther highly revered Paul. The ancients as well as the contemporary have written extensively on the works of Paul. This is certainly true of, of the subject of our exposition, the book of Romans. In fact, think about the volumes of book. Just pick up a Christian book catalog and go to the section where it says commentaries and look under Romans. And almost it, it outnumbers almost every other book in the New Testament, a letter in the New Testament, on commentaries that have been written. In fact, Barnhouse's volumes is two volumes, well over a thousand page per volume. And that's just one. Martin Lloyd-Jones, if I'm not mistaken, has at least eight volumes just on the exposition 
of Romans. And then there's countless other expositions that have been written. So you see how heavily not only the ancients, but the contemporary theologians and commentators lean, lean on Paul's theology. In fact, the number of works written on Romans is almost innumerable. The question then may arise, why study it again? Why would we open our Bibles in the setting of a Sunday morning service and why would we do it again? In fact, I've had people tell me, you keep, keep, you keep teaching or preaching expositionally, you'll kill your church. I don't believe that that's true. I do not believe that that's true. But why study it again? The answer is multifaceted, but can be summarized quite succinctly by stating each generation, and listen church, each generation, every local congregation deserves, and I use that word intentionally, deserves a fresh hearing and diligent study of this ancient masterpiece. I'll even qualify it one step further by saying if there has ever been a time, and I bet every preacher of every generation has said that, so I'm probably just using something they've already said, but if there ever has been a time, at least from my estimation, that the church needs to once again be reminded of the heart of the gospel, it's right now. Because the gospel has been defined in so many... Turn on the television, listen to preaching on TV, listen to preaching on the radio... And take the word gospel and just take a notepad and put definitions beside gospel of what you hear as being the gospel as you listen during the week. And you'll look down there and wonder of all the list of things that people have labeled the gospel, which of them is really true? So you deserve a fresh hearing and diligent study of this ancient masterpiece. In fact, it's the magnum opus. The greatest work of Paul, who was a slave of Jesus Christ, who was called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm focusing on him this morning because in order to get the most from an exposition, the most from our exposition of this great letter, it's important, I believe, to know the author. In fact, if I were to really do this, and I wouldn't have time to do this, if I were to say, okay, take out a sheet of paper and tell me what you know about Paul. Close your Bible and just tell me what you know about Paul. It'd be interesting to see what kind of biography we would get from people. And some of those would probably be very accurate. Some of you have gone through Bible studies. You've done expositions of different books. And so you probably have a very good idea of who he is. But I think it is important that we get to know the author. Who was Paul? What made him tick? What was it about him that was so effective in framing for us the gospel? In fact, Jesus had taken three and a half years with 12 men, one of them being a traitor, but at least 11 men, and had carefully taught them and instructed them. Wouldn't you think out of that, that if you have someone who's going to write one half of your New Testament, don't you think it would be one of those 11? And yet here you have one, in his own words, who is born out of season, born out of time, chosen by God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. And not only that, but chosen by God to author, as it were, the, the, our understanding of the gospel that Jesus brought to us. And even having, as I said to you in the very beginning of this exposition, one of the leading apostles, Peter, say, you need to listen to what he's saying. You need to listen to what he's writing. You need to listen to what he's preaching because the wisdom that he's giving you is the wisdom he has received from God. He's giving you the Word of God. I want to know who he is. Where did he come from? 
What did any of this have to do with how the Lord Jesus would use him to the last half of his life to frame the gospel? When we understand these things combined with what we will study, we'll gain a deeper understanding of, and I also believe an appreciation for what this servant of the Lord has given us. Now, I'll give it to you kind of systematically this morning so you can follow with me. But Saul, S-A-U-L, Saul is his Jewish name. And Saul is first mentioned in the New Testament. You are holding your place in Romans. You can turn with me to the book of Acts. He's first mentioned in the New Testament in Acts chapter 7. You would think that he would come on the scene riding a white horse, right? And being the great servant of Jesus Christ to now bring the gospel, our understanding to the gospel, right? Well, not exactly. In Acts chapter 7, verse 58 is our first mention of this Saul. Now, Stephen has Stephen, who was earlier selected in Acts as one who is to serve. Some believe he was among the first deacons, even though he's never technically called a deacon. But I've often jokingly said that, well, if anyone really wants to be a deacon, are they willing to lay down their life like Stephen? But here you have Stephen who has just completed a rather lengthy, and if you read his his speech, a scathing speech to the Jewish leaders. In fact, Luke gives 53 verses to this address of Stephen to the Jewish leaders in regards to the person of Jesus Christ. He gives them, as it were, a history of the Old Testament and then takes them up to their very rejection of the Messiah that the Old Testament was prophesying would come. And when they had heard all that they were going to hear, what happened? They were excited, repented, and came to Christ, right? No, not at all. In fact, they were so enraged that they clenched their jaw, their teeth grinding. And they were so enraged that they laid hands on Stephen, drug him out of the city, and there they stoned him. In verse 58, the first part of 58. After casting out a city, they stoned him. And then 58b, or the second part of verse 58 of Acts chapter 7, tells us this. It says, And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. You have been listening to Crosswalk Radio, and we have begun a study of the New Testament book of Romans. We hope that you will continue to join us as we study verse by verse through this most important epistle. We thank you for joining us today. And if you would like to hear this sermon or any sermon in this series, visit our website at crosswalkdaytonabeach.org. That's crosswalkdaytonabeach.org and click on Crosswalk Radio. Additionally, we encourage you to tell a friend about Crosswalk Radio and encourage them to tune in as well. Thank you for listening and please join us next time as we continue to teach, touch, and transform lives by faithfully proclaiming God's Word.